Good morning. My name is Andy, an elder here at North Shore Church, and this morning I have scripture and prayer for us. This morning's scripture is, let me pull it up, 2 Samuel, all of chapter 18, and the first eight verses of chapter 19. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the commander of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by the hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the losses there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people than the day, that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. <clears throat> Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who was who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously, against the life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok said, Let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry the news today. You may carry news another day, 
but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Job said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushites bowed before Job and ran. Then Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Job said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahamaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Job sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. <clears throat> and behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news from my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters, and the lives of your wives and of your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. <clears throat> Let's pray. Dear God, praise be to you. May your name be blessed. We give you honor and worship you. You have created this world, and by your will, it still exists. 
We are here this morning only because you allow it. Psalm 73, 28 says, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Church family, this morning I pray for all of us. I pray that we all draw near to God, that we pursue God, that we all know that feeling of being in his presence, that we can seek refuge, <clears throat> peace, and rest as we put off our cares and give them to our most holy God. I pray that as we each seek God and worship him this morning, that our soul would be at peace. The knowledge of his perfect power and love for each of us and the indwelling Holy Spirit filling us will draw us deeper and into more fellowship with our Lord. Sovereign God, we ask for forgiveness of our sins. We confess our failings now. <clears throat> we thank you for the forgiveness of our sin. Thank you that through Jesus and for the Son, for your Son and his sacrifice on the cross, that we can know you, that we can be part of your family. God, we ask for healing. We ask for healing for those here in our midst and for those at home who are in the need of your healing touch, and we ask that they would be healed even now as I speak these words. And we thank you now for how that you care for us. I ask your blessing on Duncan this morning. Please help him to deliver your message to us, and I pray that you would open each of our hearts, cause each of us to be drawn nearer to you, to our Almighty Father. Amen. Well, as you guessed from that very short scripture reading, <clears throat> we return this week to our series of messages from 2 Samuel as we once again focus on the life and reign of King David. Because we've been away for just a few weeks, we need to do a little bit of review to get up to speed. The book of 2 Samuel, or the, second, the section of 2 Samuel that we're spending time with, began in chapter 12. It reveals a season of life of David after his sin with Bathsheba. He committed adultery. This great man of God created this great epic sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah the Hittite. After his sin, David is confronted, of course, by the prophet Nathan. And Nathan told David that God had put away his sin, which means, among other things, he wasn't going to be held to the capital punishment that the law required. He wasn't going to die. And in fact, he was allowed to remain as king over Israel. But in other areas of his life, the prophecy of Nathan turned out to be a very ominous warning as a consequence of David's sin. Specifically in chapter 12, verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house or family. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now that was in chapter 12, and from that time until where we left off in chapter 17 last time, as a judgment on his sin, David has experienced a series of calamities. His infant son from his adultery with Bathsheba died his firstborn son, Amnon, rapes his daughter, Tamar, which results in David's thirdborn son murdering Amnon. So this is a soap opera. Sadly, 
Those disasters were only a partial fulfillment of God raising up evil from out of his own family. David's son Absalom, through a combination of great personal magnetism and charm and deceit, spends four years in Jerusalem gradually winning over the loyalty of the people of God away from his father, David, and to himself. And so in a bloodless coup, he drives his father, the king, out of Jerusalem into the wilderness with his wives, some of his concubines, and his loyal followers. Absalom assumes his father's throne in Jerusalem, and as was predicted in Nathan's prophecy, he publicly sleeps with David's concubines that he had left back in Jerusalem. David and his men, and by the time we are in chapter 18, there's a few thousand of them, they had managed to settle into life a bit in exile, form an army. And though it was not as large as the army that Absalom was able to recruit, it was made up of very seasoned warriors who were likely to have defeated Absalom and his forces. And then that brings us to the very long passage that Andy read where David and his men do defeat Absalom and his army. Absalom is killed, which again, of course, opens the way for David to go back to his throne in Jerusalem. The text is long, but we want to focus really on the main three characters in the story, in this episode of David's life. The first would be King David himself, then Joab, his top military commander, and the main character behind all of the stories in the Bible, and that is God. The story reveals this battle between David's army and Absalom's army, but the the author gives very few details about the battle, and Absalom's main accomplishment in this story is dying a very humiliating death. So even though the chapter in many ways revolves around Absalom, he's hardly a main character. So let's spend some time thinking about this truth about David. David was a king with wrong priorities. That's fundamentally what this reveals. We've said before that David was never quite the same after his sin with Bathsheba. He's not as discerning. He's just not as sharp. His judgment could be very skewed. That's not exactly what happened before Bathsheba, where he was known for his very swift, godly judgment. In fact, here, David does just the opposite of what he had done before, where he put his own interest behind the interest of others. Here in this story, he very much puts his own interests ahead of the interests of others, and frankly, ahead of the interest of God. After he musters the truth and he divides them into three divisions, and he's turned down in his offer to go ahead and lead the troops, he does something that's unconscionable for a king. As the army that's going out for him and for the nation of Israel, instead of doing what kings normally do as the army heads out, giving his final words of inspiration, David really falters, and it's the first of several. He should have been telling them how proud he was of them and how grateful he was that God had raised up such valiant men who were willing to go out and risk their lives to defend his throne and the kingdom to restore Israel from this season of chaos and confusion. But the only words recorded from David as his troops go off to fight for him and his kingdom are found in verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. 
Now again, we have to remember, Absalom is a rebel and an enemy of God and the king. He is under the curse of God for multiple capital crimes against the law of God, sleeping with his father's concubines and rebelling against the king. He'd thrown God's people into a state of confusion and he divided them with some following him and many following his father. He betrayed his own father, he'd murdered his own brother, so he's living under the curse of God as we meet him here. The point in all of that is to say that Absalom was certainly not a man deserving of any mercy. Beyond that, can you imagine what would have happened if David's army had defeated Absalom's army, but Absalom remained alive? Absalom, as we've seen before, is insanely ambitious, and he'd already stolen away many hearts from David and their loyalty in Jerusalem. Do you suppose he would have simply marched back into Jerusalem and said, now everybody follow my dad? I don't think so. There's nothing in his history that would indicate he would have responded that way. From the moment Absalom raises up against his father, there are only two possible outcomes. Absalom reigns and David dies, or David reigns and Absalom. Absalom dies. And that would have been clear to everybody else in the kingdom, but David is blinded to that reality by his fatherly affection for his son. Now, with respect to David, we have to be careful. We don't expect him to be some sort of um, heartless robot here who would feel no conflict whatsoever about warring against his son. Clearly, this would have been something very difficult for anyone. But David was God's appointed king, anointed by God to protect and lead God's people in righteousness. That was his first priority. It had always been his first priority before this time, especially where his family comes in. Beyond that, we know from 1 Kings that Absalom's outrageous rebellion against David, like his brother Adonijah's later rebellion, he rebels against Solomon. The reason for both of them and all the rebellion in his family, in part, was due to the fact that David was a lousy father. First Kings chapter 1 describes David's parenting in verse 6. The author's talking about his fourth son, Adonijah, but it applies to all of David's sons. The author says his father had never at any time displeased Adonijah by asking, why have you done thus and so? Translation, he never questioned him. He never rebuked him. He spoiled his kids. David has a long history of indulging his sons especially, and this is surely part of what's going on here. David knows that Absalom had sinned in multiple ways deserving death, but as he had done so often, he's again seeking to shield him from the consequences of his sinful actions. David's concern for Absalom also is sinful because it minimizes just how much is at stake in the battle. If you'd have just been looking at David, you'd have thought the only thing important at stake in this battle is that Absalom gets out alive. And yet this is a battle about reinstalling to the throne God's rightful choice as the king of his people. God hadn't chosen Absalom, God chose David. It wasn't about Absalom. It was about the throne. It was about God and restoring God's favor to Israel when his man sits on the throne. So the great gravity of what is at stake here is lost on David. 
What really concerns him, of course, is his rebellious son and getting out of this battle unscathed. We know that that's the case because after the battle is won, what is David's concern as he's waiting for the messengers to report back from the front? Well, it wasn't that God's rightful order be restored in Israel. It wasn't even the safety or the well-being of the thousands of troops who were risking their lives for him. No, as David questions these two messengers from the, from the battle, we see where his concerns lie. When Ahimaaz gives the report of the victory, the only response that David gives to this news is, is it well with the young man Absalom? Likewise, after David hears a second report of victory from the Cushite messenger, he asks only, is it well with the young man Absalom? If it weren't bad to essentially blow off the news of God's deliverance of David from his enemies, what happened after David discovered the fate of his son is even worse. In verse 33 we read, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The first four verses of chapter 19 are even more graphic. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son, and the people stole into the city that day, as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is unforgivable for a military commander to treat a victory as if it were a defeat and demoralize all the people. Even worse, rather than praise God for restoring him to his throne, he implicitly complains against God because it hadn't gone his way with respect to Absalom. So David could hardly have responded here with any less grace and courage. Now, the commentators also point out that part of what was probably going on in David's heart, and it's always risky to read a story and figure out what's going on in somebody's heart, but this is probably pretty reasonable. David, in the, in the midst of all of this, has to be thinking about his sense of responsibility that he bore because this was happening because of his sin with Bathsheba. So as a consequence of his sin, David had already lost so much in terms of his family, and now... Here, Absalom is yet one more casualty for his own sin. That had to be part of his mental process here. Joab may have been exaggerating in 19.7 when he gives a report about all this and how they're responding to David's treatment here, but he does tell him, go straighten up and go encourage the, the troops. But he then ominously warns, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Again, probably hyperbole. The point is that David's behavior was so demoralizing that it threatened to unravel everything that had been accomplished. This is not David's final hour. He's got horrible priorities here. Second major player in this drama is Joab. Joab was not only the supreme commander of David's troops, he was also the nephew of the king. And although God powerfully uses him in this episode, the author is careful to leave us not 
with a good impression of Joab. At the very least, we could say that Joab was an insubordinate commander. Joab is an insubordinate commander. At the very least, we could say that. The author reveals the truth about Joab's character when he contrasts him with another soldier who reported that Absalom was stuck in this tree. Joab said to the man who told him, what, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I had felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. You know you've won the argument when the person who you're arguing with says, I'm not wasting time with you anymore. This is checkmate here, and he knows it. The author reveals that this soldier had an opportunity to kill Absalom, but refused to do so because he'd heard the order of the king, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. But the inspired author also records an additional dig this soldier really, I think, bravely gives to Joab, and he does that in order to show us Joab's heart, his character. The soldier basically said, and besides, if I had decided to kill Joab, when the king heard about it, you would have let me swing in the breeze. I would get no support from you. That's a direct assault on Joab's integrity because he accuses Joab of wanting him to disobey a direct order of the king but not being there to defend his actions to the king. So he's duplicitous. This man knew this about Joab, and so you have to assume there were a lot of other people, especially that served under Joab, that knew that he was character defective. So, lacking a scapegoat to pin this on, Joab takes the measure into his own hands. He goes to this tree where Absalom is, and he does the deed himself. In verse 14, Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab remained restrain them. Joab sends three javelins, and it's, the Hebrew is a little bit strange here. It could be darts, because you don't throw three javelins into the heart of somebody and then have somebody come and finish the person off. They're finished off if you throw three javelins into their heart. So probably it's darts. If not, certainly the word here is not heart, it's chest. It's probably a better translation. And then, of course, these three, ten armor bearers come and, and do the dirty work and finish him up. What's important about this account isn't that, but the fact that the author shows us that Joab is in a unique position here because of this bizarre circumstance surrounding Absalom's being stuck in this tree. Absalom poses absolutely no threat here. That's pretty obvious to Joab or Israel. And the reason for us seeing this is it's clear it would have been very easy for Absalom to unhook this man who's dangling in the breeze and in obedience to the king's command to take him prisoner and escort him back to David. It would have been very easy to do that. This is not in the midst of battle. There's no fog of war going on here. The author wants us to see that Joab makes a concerted and intentional effort to break his king's command. The author is not implying that the best outcome 
would have been for Absalom to remain alive. That's not his point. The point is simply that whether this was a wise command of David or not, it was the command of the king. And Joab boldly, brazenly breaks this command. Joab is rebelling against the authority of the king. He claims to be trying to restore to power. And don't forget, in addition to the insubordination, Joab murders his cousin. So there's family dynamics involved here as well. More light is thrown on Joab's character when we see this utter tongue lashing that he gives to his uncle David, God's chosen king over Israel. Beginning with verse 5, he says, Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear that today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Now, we need to be careful here because David clearly needed to be rebuked. And Joab was the logical person to do that. So there's nothing wrong with that. What puts Joab in a bad light is how he corrects the king. Paul tells us in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. There's nothing gentle about what Joab does here. David was clearly in the wrong. His conduct was inexcusable for a king. It's also true that he just lost his son. This is vicious and it's hateful as a rebuke that he gives to David and it supports the adage, we're never more dangerous than when we know we're right. We're never more dangerous than when we know we're right. Joab sees very clearly how badly the king had missed the mark here and he lets him have it right between the eyes. This is very typical of how fallen people deal with the sin of other people, especially when that sin affects or really bothers us. It's when we see the sin of someone else and are confident that that person was horribly in the wrong that we are most dangerous. It's when we know we are in the right that we become so easily disgusted and condescending. Our self-righteousness causes us to feel justified in utterly shaming the one in the wrong. That's Joab here. He deeply resents the king's behavior, and he unloads on his king and his uncle as he's grieving his dead son. It would have been just as effective for Joab to have said this in any number of a thousand different ways, he could have very easily said, David, you've allowed your love to your son to wrongly control your response here. What you're doing here deeply hurts men who've risked their lives for you and endangers the very victory the Lord has won for you this day. Please don't steal the victory out of the mouth of defeat. The men feel horribly demoralized and your own reign could be in jeopardy if you don't go out and congratulate these men. Okay, that's hardly sugarcoating his sin, but it's not peeling the skin off of him. He's not giving him an acid bath, which is what he does here in this text. And it's a reminder for us that when we're correcting someone in the wrong, whether it's our children or other people who are clearly undeniably bad, 
We have to be mindful that disgusted self-righteous indignation is never appropriate. It feels good, but it's sinful because there's no gentleness. And our God corrects us in gentle ways, very firm, but gentle. Well, that's Joab, this insubordinate commander. The final and most important character in this and any other biblical story is God, who graciously intervenes to restore David to his throne. A very important verse in helping us see God and the theology that drives all of this episode is back in chapter 17, when the author explains why Absalom and his advisors, in the midst of this coup, reject the good counsel of Ahithophel, in favor of the poor counsel of Hushai. The author reveals, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Here's the reason. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. That controls everything in this story. That tells us that it was God's will to do harm to Absalom. Absalom had broken God's law in countless ways, and he'd brought upon himself God's curse. From that moment on, Absalom is a dead man walking. This battle was God's, and it was for God's purposes. We see God's sovereign hand all over this victory from the testimony of both of these messengers that come. Notice how they say. Ahimaaz says in verse 28, then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. So Ahimaaz doesn't have any problem seeing what's going on here. The victory comes from God. Likewise, this foreigner, this Cushite, says the same thing in verse 31. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. So there it is, explicit, repeated testimony here. God's purposes are being worked out in this battle, and that's good news. But God's fingerprints are also on this victory in ways that are more implicit and not as explicit. And by that I mean, in part, this bizarre and humiliating way in which Absalom dies. Whenever you see something like that, first of all, realize it has to be true because you'd never make it up, because no one would believe it, right? When you see these absolutely strange, bizarre things, it's testimony of the veracity, because you'd never make this up. People would say, that's strange. It is strange, but it's true. Listen to this, this story in um, chapter, verse 7. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Okay, Absalomcy is just one of many of David's enemies to perish this way. And many of them, including Absalom, perish not from the sword, they, they perish from nature. Okay? And he's revealing something about God here. And we see this in the wording that the author uses here. The verb defeated in that sentence and the noun loss translate the same Hebrew word. And the word is not used typically to describe battles. It's used to describe plagues and diseases. 
that are commonly seen as acts of God's judgment. So one commentator writes, this highlights not only the total devastation that has befallen Absalom's troops, but also the key role played by the Lord in their, over, in their overthrow. The point is that God could have killed Absalom in battle by the hand of a warrior, but the way he died is the Lord's way of saying, I don't want Absalom or much of his army to fall by human hands. I want my trees to kill them. In the past, God has used the forces of nature to show his direct act of judgment against those who oppose him. Listen to a very similar account from Joshua's description of a victory that he won over several pagan generals. Chapter 10, 11, and Joshua says, And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Do you hear it? It sounds just like this, this approach. That's the point. In our text this morning, the author reveals this comical picture of Absalom, this vain, strikingly handsome man with this thick mane of hair, and yet the Hebrew suggests that it was his hair that got tangled up in the tree as the donkey rode out from under him. How humiliating for this arrogant man, Absalom, this impressive specimen of manhood, to helplessly dangle from a tree, done in by his most outstanding feature. The irony is so thick here, you can cut it, and there's a point to it. This is God's way of communicating just how foolish it is for Absalom, irrespective of how impressive he may be as a person, to think that he could just sweep away God's anointed king by charm and deceit. This man, who thought that he was taking down God's anointed king, now hangs helplessly dangling in the breeze. So God reveals how utterly weak even a man like Absalom is when God executes his judgment on him. The way that this man dies is a clear indication of God making a statement about what happens to those who come against him and his kingdom. And that's really the first and main truth we can get from this story, and that is never ultimately, it never ultimately goes well for those who oppose God and his purposes. We have to remember that sometimes because there's a lot of people who are opposed to God and his purposes today in this country and all over. Where is Hitler? Where is Stalin? Where is Bin Laden? Or anyone else who has raised their hand up against God and his purposes. While God permits them, they can and do cause horrific, wide-scale pain and suffering to scores of innocent people. But the moment God determines in his sovereign purposes that their time is up, his judgment is swiftly carried out, and it is often humiliating and brutal. Even the Antichrist, the arch-villain of all villains that every other villain ever points to, he's going to rule a few years, and then he's going to be summarily swept to the sidewalk. Humiliating. Evil men and women will have their day but they will not last. They will one day face their maker and endure the eternal justice of a holy God. It's tempting to become overwhelmed in the midst of all the evil in our world and godless people who are ruling with all the power that they have. 
And because they do have real power over people, it can feel like they're the ones running the show and the rest of us are just helpless victims forced to watch them ruin our world. But the Lord is king over all. And Daniel 2.21 says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. One day, God is going to pull the curtain down on this current crop of pick your favorite evil leader and dictator, and there'll be nothing more than a name in history as they spend eternity under the horrific wrath of God. We also see in this story the gospel, albeit in an indirect way. Anytime we see modeled in Scripture the love of a father for a son, we get a snapshot, however imperfect as this is, of the gospel. David clearly loves his son, however badly he expresses that. And his paternal love points us to the perfect father and his eternally perfect son. The father's love for his son was infinitely stronger and perfect compared to David's love for Absalom. Yet in his unspeakable mercy, this father who loved his beloved son far more than David could have imagined loving Absalom, he surrendered that son to a torturous death on the Roman cross. Out of love for his children, God gave up his son to this agony so that as our substitute, Jesus could bear the punishment that we so justly deserve for our sin. This is the greatest expression of God's character in all of Scripture. I can say, this is the greatest expression of God's character in all eternity. He's never going to one-up this. This is the ultimate expression of who God is and His mercy and His grace. But He's willing to throw His wrath on His Son so that we might escape His wrath because Jesus became sin for us. This is the gospel. We need to preach this to ourselves every day, sometimes every hour. This is how we know whether God loves us or not. This is the power of salvation in the gospel, the substitution, propitiation, all of those theological words that we need to internalize and live out. May God give us the grace to live in the light of the Father's perfect love for us, for his glory, and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, so grateful that these stories that took place 3,000 years ago carry timeless truth. So grateful for the Holy Spirit's inspiration that chooses to highlight certain details that wouldn't need to be highlighted, but they are, and chooses to leave certain details that seem like they belong there, but they're not. And God, that helps us to understand what you're saying by what you choose to include and what you choose to exclude. God, sharpen our skills at reading these glorious Old Testament narratives so that we can see what you're saying to us. And thank you for the lessons of today. Help us to follow the good examples, learn from the bad examples, and to cherish Jesus Christ who came and received the Father's wrath so that we could be spared it. For Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.